Frank Borum once said, I've learned that my quenchless longing for life is, after all, unconsciously a secret, unutterable yearning after God. For how can you conceive of life apart from him? Most people want their life to count for something that is bigger than themselves, something that will last beyond their personal journey on this earth. And at the same time, I think most of us also desperately long to be known We want to belong in relationship with others. And so, of course, we search for meaning. We search for understanding and knowledge and wisdom about life and the world that we live in because we want to have the greatest impact. I think for most of us, we want to have the greatest influence in this world that we can for good. And at the same time, we search for relationship, for fellowship, for deep connection with other people because we crave connectedness. And so it stands to reason that if there truly is a God, right, someone who created all of this and understands all of this, someone who is ultimately in control of all of this, right, if that's true, if there really is a God who is truly the source of all knowledge and understanding and wisdom and power and authority, well, then it stands to reason that there would be a yearning hardwired into our DNA to want to be connected somehow with that source of all good things, a a yearning to be in relationship and fellowship with that God on a personal level, right? A, A relationship that transcends this world and our lives in it, which raises an obvious question. How can we then, as mortal human beings, ever expect or even hope to be in a personal relationship with a transcendent, immortal, all knowing, all seeing, all powerful God, right? Which of course leads us to the story and the person of Jesus Christ who not only lived and walked on this earth as a man, but who also claimed to be God in the flesh. And yet as desirable as you would think a relationship with Jesus would be throughout human history, far more people have rejected him than those who have run to him because as wonderful as he is, uh, the truth is, Jesus never met anyone's expectations. Even even after he told people who he was, in fact, he not only defied people's expectations consistently, but he completely often shattered their expectations. The things that Jesus said and did were typically unexpected from both the religious and the non-religious communities. Uh, He was just totally unpredictable. And so even though he was doing the most amazing things, right, he was healing people, revealing great mysteries, uh, forgiving sins, controlling the weather, (laughs) raising people from the dead, even though he was changing the world right in front of them, so many people, rather than being amazed and humbled and in awe of him, they were simply frustrated because time after time, he failed to satisfy their expectations. And to be honest, I'm not sure that a whole lot has changed in that regard because there are people today just as there always have been who reject faith in Christ even those who uh, once professed to be his followers who walk away from the faith who leave the church who become disillusioned with the gospel that they once held as truth and although you may hear all sorts of explanations for why when you get right down to it you will often find it's a matter of their expectations not being met 
People don't, won't typically say it that way. They won't frame it that way in conversation. But if you probe deep enough, that's exactly what you will very often find because we all have our own ideas about how God should be and, and how church should be and how Christians should be, right? We all have expectations about how this walk with Christ should be. The problem for us is Jesus doesn't play by our rules. By the way, nor did he ever promise to. And yet we want him to. We want him to give us what we want, when we want, and how we want it. We expect our lives to turn out a certain way as long as we follow a prescribed set of religious rules. But listen, Jesus doesn't play by our rules. So when life doesn't turn out how we imagined it would, of course we can become unreceptive to him and his message even though he continues to do the most amazing things in this world and in people's lives every single day. He turns tragedies into triumphs. He turns heartache into wisdom. He turns loss into strength. And yet so much of the wonderful work that he fashions in our lives doesn't come how we expect it to. Right? There are a lot of young people who say, I want to be a soldier one day and fight for my country. But not so many of them say, I want to be a soldier one day and die in a war. Yet many have done just that because life doesn't always meet our expectations. But listen, that doesn't mean you're on the wrong path because God's plan isn't always the same as our plan. He doesn't play by our rules and he never has, as we'll see in our story today as we continue working our way through Paul's letter to the church in Rome where Paul continues to point out the profound ways in which Jesus defies people's expectations in his own life and in ours. Yet it's always with great purpose and for our ultimate good, as we saw back in chapter 8, even, listen, when it makes no sense to us at all, which we find all the way back to his first disciples, whose lives changed drastically as their lives began to look a lot like his, to the point that what they did and what they said often was unexpected to those, at least those who were paying attention. Because the fact is, these were ordinary men and women, people like you and I, They were ordinary men and women living extraordinary lives counter to the culture, against the grain of popular culture. They lived extraordinary lives of great purpose that changed the world around them. And yet their lives didn't make a lot of sense to those who were not believers, in large part because of who they were before Christ, okay, because of their upbringing, right, the families they were raised in, their status in this world, and some of them their past, before they began following Jesus because they were just ordinary people with very simple lives, some of them with sordid lives. Certainly not the kinds of people you would choose to be leaders or influencers or world changers, but that's exactly what they became, precisely because they were not chosen for their upbringing or their status or their squeaky clean past. No, they were chosen by faith, by Jesus, who wasn't looking for pedigree or popularity, or perfection even. No, he was simply looking for men and women who with the faith of a child would say yes to following him into the unexpected, into the extraordinary. And you know he's looking for this, the very same thing today. Remember what we learned from last week. Jesus died a horrible death so that you could live an extraordinary life. Listen, regardless of your upbringing, 
regardless of your status in this world and regardless of your past, as we'll see today, Jesus is simply looking for people who will put their faith in him and then follow him into the often unexpected and always extraordinary life he created you to live. So let's jump back into the story today. We'll jump in right where we left off last week in what is the second half uh, of last week's sermon. So this is part two beginning at Romans 9, where we left off at verse 19. So we'll start out by reading verses 19 through 29, okay? Romans 9, 19 through 29. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for uh, vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel will be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully, and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Uh, If you were here last week, you'll remember from the first half of the chapter in verse 17, Paul quotes Exodus 9, 16. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Then he picks up here in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Right, who can resist? His will. In other words, if Pharaoh was raised up for the purpose of acting against God so that God's glory could be revealed in Pharaoh, right? Well then how can God possibly find fault in us when we act against him? For who can resist his will, right? Why does God still blame us? If mercy and hardening both cause his name to be proclaimed throughout the earth, if he shows mercy where he wills and he hardens where he wills, then how can anyone possibly be blamed for what he or she does, right? Good or bad? Paul is posing this question. He's actually anticipating the questions that inevitably come when you talk to people about the sovereignty of God, his ruling power over all creation from people who believe that God acts unkindly or unfairly in certain people's lives while simultaneously blessing others. And so, first of all, when Paul asked the question for us, who can resist his will? That verb resist, anthistemi in the ancient Greek, it means to set oneself against or to stand against. It's actually the deliberate, albeit futile, setting of the will of puny man against the all-powerful will of Almighty God. And so, yes, God is repeatedly said to have hardened Pharaoh throughout Exodus, and we read that all of the time, but do you know that actually more times than that, in Exodus, far more times, in fact, I almost listed them for you, but we didn't have time. More times than that, in Exodus, Pharaoh is repeatedly said to have hardened himself, because God's hardening 
always followed what Pharaoh did himself. Okay, God's hardening of someone always presupposes sin. It's always a part of the punishment of sin. Right? God does not harden people who do not go astray first in their heart. As, as uh, James, the brother of Jesus, points out, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, James 1.13. And so Paul is saying that God created people, that people became sinners, and that God then deals with them as sinners, which means it would be in error to think that God persuaded an unwilling, kind-hearted Pharaoh to be hard toward God and Israel because the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was God simply allowing Pharaoh's heart to pursue its natural inclinations. In other words, Pharaoh was not a puppet. He did exactly what he wanted and willed to do. And yet even at that, Paul's trying to make a much bigger point here because where, where we tend to think of this discussion about God's sovereignty and his hardening of individuals in the context of their eternal destiny, which is fine, but throughout this section of the letter, at least, that's not at all what Paul is primarily dealing with. No, he's, he's dealing with the failure of Israel as a whole to respond to the Messiah over against the fact that the church at the time was largely Gentile. You understand, this was highly provocative, explosive subject matter in the church at the time. And as we'll see, it actually still is today when you understand it in light of our present context. And so throughout this entire chapter, Paul's saying that God works out his purposes for the good of those who love him. We saw that last week by all sorts of means, right? Including things like choosing Isaac and rejecting Ishmael, choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau, or even hardening Pharaoh. He's making the point that even Israel's present hardening as a whole does not and cannot defeat God's purpose, but rather it's actually the means that God is using to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, which also happens to powerfully illustrate the absolute sovereignty of God in our lives because no matter what God-fearing or God-hating people choose to do, Either way, he says he works all of it together ultimately for the good of those who love him. In other words, we cannot even begin to imagine the purposes of God at work in this world, in the lives of all of mankind, those who follow him and those who don't. Therefore, Paul says, why do we even think it's okay to question the motives of a holy, sovereign God to begin with? Right? Who are you? These are Paul's words, not mine. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? So yes, Paul's anticipating the questions that inevitably come when we talk about the sovereignty of God, and yet at the same time he says, listen, those are actually illegitimate questions to begin with, questions that the creature has no right to ask of the creator. Leon Morris said it this way, the whole of man's thinking and living are on the basis of his being a created being who as such cannot call the creator to account and could not understand him if he were to oblige. James Smart points out that a Pilate, a Judas, and a Jerusalem council can nail the savior of the world to a cross, but it is God who decides what that cross is to mean in the subsequent history of mankind. Okay, Paul is not saying that there isn't an answer to the question, he's saying that the question itself is illegitimate because mankind is not in a position to even ask it. 
And so instead of questioning what God is doing, Paul says we should be paying attention to what God is doing and helping him do it. Because what he's doing is something so extraordinary. Well, no one could have ever anticipated or expected it. And then Paul goes on to quote from Hosea, actually from the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. He says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And at the same time, referring to the Israelites, he quotes Isaiah, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So Paul says, hey, hey guys, listen up. I understand that this is not what you expected. The fact is, this isn't what any of us expected. But listen, questioning God's motive is not the answer here. Right? None of us expected him to call the Gentiles his people. But questioning his motives is not the answer because first of all, he doesn't answer us to begin with, which means the only proper response to the work of Christ in the lives of the most unexpected people on earth, right? The people with the worst upbringing, the lowest status, the most messed up past, the Gentiles, the only appropriate response to God choosing them to be grafted into his family is to accept and become a part of what he's doing. Because contrary to popular religious belief for people at the time and for many uh, still today, first of all, you're not chosen by your upbringing. That was point one in our outline last week. If you're taking notes, you're not chosen by your upbringing, right? Anything that anyone has ever said to you, a family, a friend, someone in authority in your life, anything anyone has ever said to you about you that is contrary to what God says about you in his word is a lie because you are who God says you are. And furthermore, you're not chosen by your status. That was point number two. What this world thinks of you means nothing. It means nothing in light of what God thinks of you. And as Paul continues to point out in this part of the letter today, he says you're not chosen by your past. Listen, the Gentiles... Uh, they didn't have the history that the Israelites had led out of Egypt by Moses, right? Led into the promised land by Joshua, led to victory by David. This long history of being preferred, chosen, the blessed people of God. These Gentiles, listen, who again comprise the majority of the church, they couldn't claim any of that. These were people who grew up as pagans enemies of God how could he possibly choose them of all people to be his people it was inconceivable to many in the church then and I'm telling you it's just as inconceivable to many in the church today that God would take some of the most messed up beat up seemingly hopeless people and call them his own people but that's exactly what he does which means now when you're in Christ, you're no longer defined by your past because according to Paul, you're not the same person you used to be. He said if anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. As I've said before, your past is there to learn from, not to live in. 
hear me, your, your past is not there for you to, to, to uh, live in. It's there for you to learn from, right? It's, which means in Christ, you never have to go back to your old way of living, to your old way of trying to overcome your own brokenness, to your old way of searching for wholeness in your life because of the redeeming work of Christ in your life. You are now a brand new person. You've been given a brand new identity and the reason that's so important for you to hear today is because some of you have been carrying around hurt and brokenness so long in your life that you don't know any other way and in the process you've forgotten who you really are to the point that you just assume it's your burden to bear as long as you walk this earth. So you keep going back to the temporary fixes that help you for a little while but ultimately fail to bring your life into true wholeness because none of those temporary things can do for you what Jesus already did for you. Look, every time you run to something or someone else to ease the pain of your past, of your brokenness, of your mistakes, what you're saying is, what you're actually saying is, Jesus, you're not enough. Jesus is someone to believe in but I don't trust him enough to heal my brokenness, right? Jesus can save me for the next life, but he cannot heal my brokenness in this life. Jesus can save my soul, but he cannot heal my heart. Do you realize how absurd that way of thinking is? But that's exactly how we think. Listen to me, Jesus came to make you whole, and he's the only one who can. So why would you continue to live in your past when Jesus has already given you a whole new future, a whole new identity? You understand, there's no part of your life, even the seemingly insignificant parts, even the very difficult parts, there's no part that escapes the plan and purpose that God has for you because he works all things together for your good which means every single thing in your life has a purpose, a God purpose, and so your past is there for you to learn from, not for you to live in. Now look, obviously events happen in our lives and circumstances arise that are unplanned by us, right? Unexpected, unforeseen, and sometimes when those moments come, our progress seems to stop. We can feel stranded when everything that we've been working toward comes to a screeching halt and often those times appear to be anything but the hand of God working in our lives because listen, uh, there's a tendency in our humanness, there's a tendency for us to only view that which makes us feel good or that which we perceive to be something positive to be God working on our behalf. Like that's the only way he works in our lives. Romans 8, 28 doesn't say, and we know that for those who love God, the positive things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, that's not what it says. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things means everything, the positive things and the negative things, the comfortable things and the uncomfortable things, the easy things and the hard things. Paul says all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And if there was ever anyone outside of the Godhead who was qualified to make that statement, certainly it's the Apostle Paul. I, I saw a sign somewhere that said, sometimes you win and sometimes you learn. Really, that's a better way to view our experiences and situations in life, that perspective that recognizes God's hand working on your behalf even when life doesn't appear to be going your way. 
Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, for we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. See, God sees the whole picture that we cannot. And he's made a life's worth of plans for you before you were even born. So there's no surprises for him. And so what it boils down to is that we have to not only trust that he's always working on our behalf, but actually we should habituate ourselves. We should train ourselves to constantly be looking for the hand of God at work in our lives, particularly in those difficult times when we feel stranded in life. Pastor and author Rick Warren said, God is love. He didn't need us, but he wanted us. And that is the most amazing thing. I wonder sometimes if we really understand the depth of God's love for us. I don't, I don't think we do. The links that he went to to save us before we even knew we needed saving. Especially, I wonder if we really understand what that says about how much we're worth regardless of what your past looks like, what mistakes you've made. Right? I'm convinced that when we struggle with feelings of worthlessness, I'm convinced that we either don't know God or if we do know him, then we don't have any idea how much he actually loves us. Because if you truly know the God of the universe and you also know how much he truly loves you, then you might struggle with a lot of things in this life, but believing you're worthless will never be one of them. The apostle Paul was a murderer and a persecutor of the church by his own admission, and yet he wrote, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you know he was thinking of himself. He made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. The apostle Peter rejected Jesus in a profanity-laced denial just before Jesus was crucified. Later, Peter wrote this about himself and about us. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times why for the sake of you first peter 1 18 through 20 jude the brother of jesus who along with the rest of his family before jesus's death and resurrection he publicly accused jesus of being insane doubting he was actually the son of god jude later wrote this to the church he said keep yourselves in the love of god waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. You know he was thinking about himself, Jude 21 and 22. These were all men, by the way, who were very good at sinning. They were overachievers when it came to doing the wrong thing. And yet God chose to save them anyway. And although they still made mistakes, certainly there was still sin evident in their lives at times through the redeeming work of Christ in their lives. They literally went on to change the world for the sake of Christ. Listen, only because of what Jesus did in them. It certainly wasn't because of their glorious past. Yet we wouldn't even know their names today or anything significant about them if it wasn't for the work of Christ in their lives. You see, if, if after coming to Christ, they tried to continue living their lives as they did before coming to Christ, what kind of impact do you think they would have had on this world? 
right? Every meaningful thing, every lasting thing, everything that truly made an impact on the people around them and generations since was only because they abandoned who they were before Christ, embracing who they now were in Christ. In other words, it wasn't until they traded in their past life, their past identity, even their past achievements for the infinitely superior new life in Christ, it was only then that they discovered their true worth, which is also when they began to discover what they were truly capable of. You understand it's no different today. You're never going to discover all that you can be as long as you're still holding on to what you used to be. Okay, your mistakes cannot invalidate God's plans for your life or the dreams he's given you. And yet I can't tell you how many people over the years have told me that it was too late for them to be able to pursue that dream or that plan that God had given them for their life because they've made too many mistakes along the way. Too much water under the bridge. Okay, so, so our impotence can somehow overcome God's omnipotence? Are you kidding me? Who do we think we are? When you actually start believing that your mistakes can somehow nullify the plan and dream that God put inside of you, you're giving yourself far too much credit. Because our inferiority cannot overcome his superiority. Our limitations cannot overcome his limitlessness. Which means your mistakes, your past, cannot overcome his plan for your life. So listen, if God has given you a dream, put that inside of you, a plan for your life, I don't care how many times you've messed up or how big the mistakes have been, there's no expiration date on that dream until God calls you home. Which means as long as you're breathing, you can dream that dream. In fact, the moment you align your heart and will with his heart and his will, you can pursue that dream because God is with you. And there's no amount of mistakes that can overcome his will for your life. You don't believe me? Just ask Paul or Peter or Jude. For that matter, ask Rahab or Esther or Ruth, all people who had every reason in the world based on their past lives to believe they would not be able to go where God was calling them to go, except that every one of them did go where God called them to go, accomplishing what they otherwise never could. And when you read about their lives, you'll find two things common between them all. Number one, it was hard. And two, God's redeeming work in their lives was enough to get them there. Jesus was enough. Even though I'm certain at one point or another, every one of them must have questioned their own worth. Why? Because as successful uh, for God as they were, if you look at their past, come on. Paul was a murderer. Peter was a liar. Jude was a betrayer. Rahab was a prostitute. Esther was an orphan. And Ruth was a destitute pagan widow. So what's your excuse? Is your past worse than theirs? You know, it wouldn't matter even if it was. Tuli and Shadivan said, God's ability to clean things up 
is infinitely greater than our ability to mess things up. See, no matter how bad your past may be, God choosing you to live an extraordinary life for him is not based on your past. It's based on something entirely different, as we'll see as we finish our story for today. Let's read verse 30 to the end of this chapter, and we're going to actually continue reading into chapter 10, uh, where we'll stop at verse 13, because it all fits together, okay? So we'll start at verse 30 and go into verse 13 of chapter 10. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah. Throughout this entire section of the letter, Paul's emphasizing the point he's just made in the previous chapter, the fact that Israel's current state of separation from God is the result of their unbelief. It's not a refusal on God's part to accept them, right? which speaks directly actually to our own responsibility regarding the state of our relationship with Christ, which again, Paul says, has nothing to do with our works. It's nothing to do with your past or your upbringing or your status in this life. It has everything to do with faith. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they thought they could earn their way into God's kingdom, into his favor. And of course, those who, who attempt to establish their own righteousness in this life, of course, they see no need to believe in Christ. That's common among men. And so they have stumbled, Paul says, over the stumbling stone. They've, the stumbling stone is Jesus, which was prophesied, by the way, 700 years earlier in Isaiah 28, 16. So Paul continues, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, 
or who will descend into the abyss, <clears throat> that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, there's no need uh, to travel to heaven to bring Christ to earth because God has already sent him into the world. Nor should anyone think they have to bring Christ up from the dead because God has already raised him from the dead. Okay, What God requires from us is not superhuman works but faith in Christ Jesus and his gospel that Paul and the others have been preaching, the word of faith that we proclaim, as Paul puts it. This is why, listen, this is why it doesn't matter if your past was perfect or a complete disaster or somewhere in between, because no matter what's in your past, it cannot qualify or disqualify you from being chosen by God, because you're not chosen by your upbringing, you're not chosen by your status, and you're not chosen by your past. You are chosen by faith. You're chosen by God's grace through your faith, no matter what your life looks like, the moment, listen, the moment you believe and put your faith and trust in Jesus, everything changes. Doesn't matter who you think you are, what matters is who he says you are. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're dealing with today. There is no distinction, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved do you believe that I hope you do because he's the only thing worth believing in because listen religion won't save you and you cannot save yourself it's only when you come to him in humble faith-filled submission that you're truly made clean made whole See, regardless of your upbringing, your status in the world, your, your past, in Christ, you are good enough. In Christ, you are worthy enough. In Christ, you are strong enough. In Christ, you are clean enough. In Christ, you're holy, accepted, righteous, redeemed, restored, powerful, and perfectly whole. All of the things you never could be without him, you are when you abide in Christ. But listen, believing in him, it means more than just praying a simple prayer. I mean, it often starts with that. But what it leads to is so much more because truly believing in Jesus means abiding in Jesus. And interestingly, <clears throat> when Jesus talks about us abiding in him, he likens our abiding in him to branches that grow out from a vine. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. In other words, the two are inextricably linked. They're permanently connected. That need sewn into our DNA for connection with our creator is satisfied as the branches rely on the vine for strength and support and nourishment. Without the vine, what can the branches do? Nothing. Right, but when the branches abide in the vine, they produce fruit because your life is a reflection of what you believe in or abide in. Because when you believe, listen, when you actually believe, you change. You don't stay the same. You can't stay the same. Because of the extraordinary revelation of the glorified Christ in your own life, everything changes, I'm telling you, it has to. You cannot truly believe that the spirit of Christ who conquered death and the grave lives inside of you and remain unchanged. Okay, so why then 
are there so many Christians living as if they are unchanged? Like the rest of the world who has yet to have a revelation of the Christ. Well, listen, if that's you, it's not because you haven't been changed. No, if you're, if, if you're truly born again, if you are in Christ, you have been changed. You understand, you've been transformed by the Spirit of Christ within you. If you're truly born again, that's happened. Jesus died on the cross once. He's not going to do it again. Because once was enough to set you free from every sin you've ever committed and every sin you're ever going to commit. If you're a Christian, you have been transformed whether you decide to live like it or not. See, the problem isn't that you haven't been changed. The problem is you don't believe it. Whether it's your upbringing, something someone said to you, or your current status in this world, or your past hurts, your past mistakes, whatever it is, you don't believe that God has truly overcome all of that in your life already. I'm telling you, there's so many Christians today who are living in a prison of lies that they've built around themselves, things they believe about themselves, even though they have long since been liberated from those lies by Christ, and yet they live as if nothing has actually changed, as if they're still captive to that old life. The Apostle Paul, referring to every single Christian, said this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, then what? You will be free indeed. John 8, 36. Okay, if you're a Christian and you're not living an extraordinary life in his service today, if that's you, you're truly born again, but you're not really living the life that he created you to live, it's not because there's something he still needs to do in your life. Sorry, we use that excuse all the time. No, it's not because there's still something he needs to do in you. It's because you don't believe what he's already done in your life. Because you've been liberated already from your old self, irrevocably transformed into a new creation. And as we continue to see in this story, you have been given extraordinary gifts to enable you to live an extraordinary life in service to Christ. And yet not one bit of that will do you one bit of good if you don't believe it because what you believe shapes the way you live your life. Okay, the truth is, Jesus died a horrible death so that you could live an extraordinary life. And then he rose from the dead and he walked out of that tomb setting you free once and for all from the captivity of your old self and your old life. Everything that's ever been said to you that shouldn't have been or done to you that shouldn't have been or that you've done to yourself that you shouldn't have. Listen to me. In spite of all of that, you can believe what Jesus did for you and what he says about you. You can believe it because it is the truth you are who he says you are. Not what that person said to you or did to you or what you did to yourself. That's a lie. 
You are who God says you are, which means no matter your upbringing, no matter what the world says about you, and no matter your past, you can get on with living the extraordinary life he created for you today. Or, or you can keep believing that nothing has actually changed in your life and continue to live as if it hasn't, even though everything has. You see, that's a choice you have to make. And I just want to be certain you understand this because if your life is not where it should be or could be today and you have been born again in Christ, listen, you're not waiting on God to change your life even if you think you are. You're not. You're not because he's already changed your life. You just have to believe it. You just have to embrace it, that extraordinary truth, because only then can you begin to live in the reality of it, the reality that no matter where you've come from, no matter where you are today, and no matter what you've done in your past, by his grace, through your faith, he has chosen you to live an extraordinary life. Let's pray.